All right. Well, I am Brandon Mercer. And I am Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, March 3rd, 2016, and this is episode 16 of Garbage. All right, good. Well, let's do what we always do. Um, let's talk about some OpenBSD things that are happening. And uh, tonight we have a whole bunch of um, items to just talk about and cross off the list, so we'll get started. Yeah, in the last episode, uh, OpenBSD 5.9 had been tagged and branched, and we've since moved on, I guess, and things are getting ready for pre-orders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so we're preparing, there's like a web page, a 5.9 web, web page that we get together, and we put all the details of what happened in that past release while they're fresh in our minds, and then that goes up for pre-orders and stuff like that. So uh, that's happening now. It still needs a little bit of work, and then once that's finished, we will have, um, shortly thereafter, the pre- pre-orders will be available, and guys can order your copies of OpenBSD and get stickers and all that kind of stuff. So it looks like there's lots of new activity. People are finally able to uh, add new files and delete things and or add new directories, I guess, is the constraint. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I even saw a commit from a Brandon Mercer. Uh, it wasn't from me. I was <laughs> doing uh, some, some getting some free commits from uh, Patrick Willett. He was um, moving essentially the FDT into out of SOC PPC into um, OFW, so it can be used by ARM as well. And this is a change that we talked about before at hackathons actually a couple of hackathons we've talked about it and um you know no one's ever had any objections but no one has done the code so this is um he submitted a diff little lightweight changes just move things around a little bit and uh wanted to get things moving so i got it in the tree as quickly as possible talked to a couple other people and they said yep go for it so um and and the more exciting thing about that is there's um some pretty exciting things happening on arm again um i've been pretty busy i never really um have been doing too much in that area but also patrick is doing a lot of stuff now and um he's been se- uh sending diffs into tech and um he's no longer working on the bitrig project so all of his time is going to into his personal things and ARM stuff on OpenBSD, so that's a welcome change for me, I suppose, and everybody else who uses ARM on OpenBSD because it's been, to a large extent, pretty well ignored. So we're yeah. going to see a lot of uh, momentum soon. Yeah, and I saw there was a uh, D message floating around of a the new Raspberry Pi three booting multi-user. Yeah, that's right. So he um, now. To, to clarify, the hardware is a 64-bit ARM V8 chip, and um, right now it's booting in um, in 32-bit mode, so there's like fallback instructions for ARM V7, and um, there was, um, you know, Patrick did a bunch of work to get that to uh, boot, but it was not using the flattened device tree so he's got a bunch of things, you know, hacked up in drivers that couldn't be committed as they are right now. So while he's kind of like proving out the hardware and proving that he can get it to, to multi-user, we still have to get FDT ironed out. We have to get all that kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, incorporated into our drivers. So 
there's a bunch of things that still need to happen. And, and he said even still the, the USB is not very good. Um, and the Ethernet hangs off of the USB on that Raspberry Pi. So mm-hmm. it's $35, and you can do some stuff, but maybe it's not the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it, it's awesome news for sure. It's a quad-core processor, and um, they're bumping up the CPU cycles quite a bit on it, and um, 64-bit, so exciting stuff for sure, but maybe not quite where we want to be with ARM hardware quite yet. Yeah, but uh, progress is progress. Yeah, definitely exciting. I, and I know he was excited to get it um, that far, and, and not to trivialize it, but it didn't take as much work as, as was anticipated, I don't think. So he was excited about that. Cool. I was just kind of observing that um, people were talking today about having trouble um, with SSL version 2 being disabled in OpenSSL. And, you know... We did that in LibreSSL a couple years ago, and our ports team, you know, went through and fixed all of the ports that um, had SSL v2 dependencies and were linking against it and all that stuff. And you know, here we are two years later, and people are kind of stumbling through the same things. And uh, I mocked him a little bit on Twitter uh, that I found it interesting, but it's not really like a Linux versus BSD thing. It was just kind of like how software projects manage that type of um, change happening in the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I mean, it. yeah, I guess it's not specifically BSD versus Linux, but it's definitely um, the way, at least, that OpenBSD is managed, kind of like an entire system, everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on Linux, you have, like, maybe the kernel and a small set of, like, uh, userland stuff, and then all the third-party packages are basically packaged up by random people, um, and none of that stuff is all built together. So right. when something like this happens and something breaks, uh, the fallout gets noticed by the users or by those random third parties compiling software. Right. And I and I think this is one of the times when our smaller uh, developer base. Um, tends to be a benefit because we can coordinate those types of changes uh, proactively. And, you know, a lot of people, they don't put enough emphasis on this, but when we say we do things proactively, this is a, a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we sat down and we decided we want to deprecate this, we want to get it out, the code out of the tree. And before that happened, though, there were people sitting in a room and they said, well, what, what's the impact of ports? And, you know, so they got together and they said, let me take a look. And they collaborated and they took care of things and said, uh, or they discovered that, you know, if they were going to make this change right now, this is the impact. And so they said, okay, well then we'll coordinate it so that it'll happen on this time frame." And the impact was minimalized uh, significantly. And, um, you know, the other side of that is what happened with like Gen 2 where, you know, people were like, what happened? What'd you guys change? You know, somebody's got to give us a heads up. This is crazy. So, mm. you know, that's one of those, that is the difference between how the projects are run and the cultures are different, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I can't even count how many times someone's proposed a diff and the answer is, you know, build it on the ports machines and see if all of that third-party software still works or what the mm. fallout is. And then uh, that kind of gives us the assurance that uh, nothing out there is really using it or nothing important anyway. 
and that we're free to make those changes. Yeah. Now, um, Stuart did point out that um, they got a lot of their work from Debian. Uh, when they, when we were ripping out SSL v2, I think that they looked a lot at what had happened in, in Debian when they did that. So um, I don't know that we were necessarily the first, but it was just one of those things that we coordinated, and, and it's a good example to model from. Yeah. Well, while we're on the topic of um, OpenSSL and LibreSSL, um, there's, a, there's a guy who works on um, LibreSSL and FreeBSD, and he was saying that, um, I think it was the cha-cha cipher was significantly faster in OpenSSL than it was in LibreSSL. And he does a really good job of like benchmarking things and comparing and contrasting. And I guess what happened was, uh, the cha-cha stuff got implemented in, uh, ASM and we don't have that in ours. So ours is a little bit less performant. Um, but I did want to make an observation about that and, um, it was kind of orthogonal. They, they weren't related, but I saw something come through and it was like, Hey, check out this diff for this ASM for this other thing that happened. And, um, it was so hard to read. It was like a, a combination of like ASM and Perl and all this kind of stuff ratted together. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard to read that it wasn't very auditable. And so when you're talking about a crypto library, yes, you absolutely want it to be performant. Um, but as we've kind of seen with OpenSSL lately, the the code needs to be readable and it needs to be something that you can understand and other people can understand. And um, so I guess what I'm saying is there's kind of a two-edged sword here between some of these choices that are being made in, in uh, these crypto tools. Yeah. Was that related to the one of the new SSL vulnerabilities that had a uh, catchy code name, Cashbleed or something? Yeah, Cashbleed. So there's like, when you have a big vulnerability now, you create a website and a yeah. Twitter account and all this stuff and you hype it up. But, but I think, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, the Cashbleed thing was something to do with um, timing and to fix it would be digging into that assembly code. Yeah. And uh, somebody, somebody was asking about it and they were like, well, I don't really know how to... Uh, look into fixing it because it's all that weird Perl generated assembly code. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, when you talk about something like that, we, we get, um, the community shares these diffs around these fixes, um, some more than others. So when there's a vulnerability, they say, here's the fix we have. And, you know, we obviously, we look at the impact that it has on our project most of the time there is not a direct impact, but then we also make sure that it actually fixes the um, the issue that's being stated. Mm-hmm. And because sometimes what will happen is somebody will say, oh my gosh, there's this huge vulnerability, and we try and recreate it in OpenBSD, and what winds up happening is it doesn't have the same behavior in OpenBSD as it does in a Linux system or in FreeBSD or NetBSD. So we we go through that process on our own, um, the sort of due diligence, and audit it. And when you see stuff like this, it's really, really hard to look and figure out what's happening to be able to, one, figure out if it fixes the issue, and two, know if it doesn't break something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially an issue like this where it's some super subtle caching timing bug right. uh, with the CPU 
as opposed to like, oh, this overflows a, a buffer or something like that. Right. Yep. Timing attacks are weird like that. Yeah. Does it behave different differently with big lock versus fine grain locking and all these kind of things? So yeah, that's kind of a we won't beat that horse any further, but um it it is kind of one of those things where, you know, you have to uh take a look at the the diffs that are sent out to make sure that they actually do what they're advertising, which is probably good advice for uh many things in life. Verify the claims that people are making. Yeah. It's funny, um I know that I've said this before, but I have watched people on YouTube and all they do is like get a product and they look at the label and they say, okay, here's what this is claiming. Let's try it out. And they see how true, um, to the label it, it winds up being. And, you mm -hmm. know, a lot of times there's more to the story and everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think a common one with that is, uh, at least with computers is like battery life how much battery life like a product claims to get and how much it actually gets during normal usage. Right. And uh, at least like Apple has usually understated how much battery life they get so that even if you test it in like the worst conditions, you still get what they claim. But in real life, you often get much better than that. Yeah. It's kind of the old adage of uh, under promise and over deliver. Yeah. Yeah. Chargers and the transmitters. I mean, I see people measuring all sorts of stuff. It's it, and it is surprising sometimes what you see, um, what goes on in there. Well, uh, one thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, um, we were doing a little bit of coverage in the past about languages and web frameworks and all that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, I just got my feet wet a little bit with, um, Elixir and, um, it was at the recommendation of a friend of mine, and he said, Brandon, you, I think you would really enjoy this language. And, and I said, okay. And I kind of approached things with the standpoint of, like, what problem does this solve? Um, am, I, am I improving my situation by, you know, adopting this new tool? And really, uh, my first impressions are kind of neutral. I'm not, like, doing cartwheels and backflips um, with gut instincts of, like, hooray. And it's not like, oh, this is horrible. I can't believe this is like the worst thing ever. Um, and that's both for the web framework Phoenix and for the Elixir um, tools. I'm installing them and getting them up and running was, you know, relatively straightforward. And um, I got my web application running in it and it's giving me some like performance metrics and all that kind of stuff. Um, and with any web framework, I guess, in 2016, uh, there was a little bit of uh, talk about Node and Grunt and all this kind of stuff. And I went through a couple of those things just to satisfy their, like, installation requirements. But um, no real impressions either way yet. I'm excited to learn about it a little bit more and see kind of how it all shakes out. Is Elixir the one that's uh, on the Erlang VM? Yeah, that that's right. Yeah, okay. Yep. And, and the one thing that, um, kind of made me interested in it is I saw somebody do a little Erlang cluster on a bunch of little ARM boards. And I thought that was kind of neat. And they were building a distributed web application or something like that. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of an educational kind of thing. And so I pulled it out and gave it a try and, uh, was relatively happy with it. I didn't do any distributed things yet. Just, you know, playing with it on my laptop. But yeah, it runs on the Erlang virtual machine and, um, is generally used for more distributed type computing. Um, how does the like language 
itself, like the way it looks and everything? How does it compare to Erlang? Um, I don't know Erlang well enough to really say. Um, I know that uh, what I saw, the syntax, I mean, it wasn't confusing. It was just kind of like learning the nuances of it. But I don't know Erlang at all to say uh, what Elixir does differently than Erlang. I, the one thing I notice about um, Elixir, or I don't know if it's Elixir or Erlang or whatever, but you have to hit Control-C twice to actually stop your program. So, it, you know, uh, when you hit Control-C once, it says break. Do you want to abort, continue, get process information, info, loaded, version, kill, um, and there's B tables, and then distribution. So that's a little different than your normal uh, Control-C behavior. Um, but yeah, the Elixir has this, um, you kind of, I guess they call them mixes, and you mix in things. Uh, so you might say, like, um, mix Phoenix server, phoenix.server, and that uh, fires up the, the server, um, like the Phoenix web server. So there's a whole bunch of other things. Like, you can, you know, do these Phoenix, um, or do these mix commands to start up stuff and pull things in and configure projects and all that kind of stuff. So it's all new to me now. I'm still trying to figure it all out. Yeah. Did we talk about... Um, CVS versus Git one time. I can't remember. Probably. Yeah, I'm sure Sounds we have. Sounds like something we would talk about. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's really easy to, to form an argument against how poorly merging works in Git and Mercurial and uh, various source control systems. And one of the things that I decided to do was to get some perspective on it. And I have been uh, merging code in from a couple people at work by hand for the past two or three weeks. Um, I'll kind of give them a snapshot of my code, and I'll work on it, and I'll check in my code. And then I use diff um, and vim to look at the differences between various parts of the application and pull in changes like line by line. And it made me really appreciate how much better merging works in those tools than it does by hand. And um, obviously they aren't without fault, but um, it was a very fun exercise to do because I think uh, sometimes it's really easy to say like, oh man, this is horrible or this doesn't work or, you know, I wish they could just fix this thing. But if you look at, you know, the cost of doing it by hand, it's so much better to use the tool. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we have a small backlog of listener requests, so thanks to everyone that's written to us. Uh, David, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name. It looks very French. Uh, Arsenio Ar 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 <laughs> um, wrote in to ask about the Google Summer of Code that uh, the OpenBSD Foundation was, I guess, a member of, if you can call it that, for 2015. There were a list of probably... I don't know, 15 projects um, that various OpenBSD developers had uh, written up like a summary of. And then um, I guess for anybody that's not familiar with the Google Summer of Code, um, so projects like OpenBSD become, uh, they join the Google Summer of Code and then they present project ideas. And then um, students, I guess, does it have to be students? Yeah, I think they do. I think it's uh, uh, like a collegiate thing. Okay. So then uh, these students, like during the summer when they're not at school, 
they um, can apply to work on one of these projects from or from various organizations like OpenBSD, and then Google pays them some money to do this. And uh, I think all of the uh, projects have to be open source, and the organizations have to be approved by Google. So people have been asking the OpenBSD group for a very long time of uh, about why we weren't a member of this. And uh, from what I recall, there were a lot of legal issues around it because Google mm -hmm. needed somebody from the OpenBSD project to sign a bunch of stuff, and we didn't know who could do that and uh, or like who wanted to sign a non-disclosure and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So finally, uh, now that we have the OpenBSD Foundation, um, somebody was able to sign all that stuff and coordinate with them and finally get us into the project yeah. or into the program. So anyway, so we finally had this list of like 15 projects that some developers proposed, and I think only like two of them got um, picked up by students. Right. Um, and so David uh, was writing in to ask what the status of those projects were. Um, and as far as I know, only one of them um, kind of was completed, or at least to a state that code could be handed back to the OpenBSD project, and then we could decide if uh, we wanted to import the code or not. Yeah. Um, and that was something with LibSA. Yeah, LibSA. And um, I guess, uh, so the way these work, there's a mentor who kind of uh, gives out information to the student and gives them some guidance and that kind of stuff. And um, they they have enough information to know if they hit their marks, if they've completed the, the task at hand and all that kind of stuff. And um, if they do complete the task at hand, then it's kind of on the OpenBSD project to decide whether the implementation is good enough to go back in the tree or if maybe there were some other considerations that came up during the development cycle that need to be considered. Um, so yeah, as, as far as I understand, um, LibSA was supposed to get a bunch of work and uh, uh, one of the criteria, I guess they were trying to... Um, it's really strange with ARM. You have like an entire operating system built into every single uh, stage of this bootloader, <laughs> and LibSA needed to have stuff added to it so that we could uh, talk to the file system and read the kernel and do all this other kind of stuff. So uh, in order to do that, you pretty much have to build an entire operating system in LibSA uh, to be able to do all that kind of stuff early on. And uh, as far as I know, the, the goals were met. Like the student was able to accomplish those things, but um, I think that there was uh, a few things that needed to be ironed out before that code made it back into the tree. And this is like one of a, a bunch of things that has to happen for um, the boot program in OpenBSD to be s supported on ARM platforms. Hmm. So it would have been nice to, um, I mean, I, I think that the work is still somewhere. I have never seen it. Um, but uh, I think we'd, we'd like to get that work um back in the project and doing stuff that we need it to do so that all these ARM platforms have a, a little bit better way to install their kernels and upgrade their kernels. Yep, so I can't remember what the other code was, um, so sorry to the uh, student that worked on that, but I don't have that in front of me right now. But um, I'll put the link to the uh, ideas list in the show notes, so if any of you out there are bored and want to know what you can work on to uh, to contribute something to OpenBSD, maybe you can 
tackle one of these things. Yeah. Um, and as far as I know, the OpenBSD Foundation is not a member of the Google Summer of Code for 2016. So um, I guess we just didn't really get the uh, response that we were hoping. Yeah, and it's kind of a bummer for us, and it's a bummer for um, the students. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, they won't get paid to work on this stuff, but certainly uh, anybody is free to take on any of these projects and start working with one of the developers on it. Yep. Because these are things that uh, we still want to get done. And, like, one of the things on this list is Zen guest support for OpenBSD, mm-hmm. which we have now but was not done through this program. So, I mean, there are still things that even if a student doesn't pick up one of these projects that... Uh, one of the developers might. Yeah, Mike V did a bunch of work with that stuff. He and Rake through, um, what's the name of Rake's business? Estenera? Yeah, that's right. And let's see, another listener request. Uh, Mark Rubin uh, wrote in to ask about um, secure web browsing on OpenBSD and how, I guess, we do it. Um, what do you think? Do you have a weird browser config on OpenBSD? No, I don't. Um, I've been using Firefox mostly. Um, I don't. I don't do anything special to it really. The only thing I do is disable caching, but mostly because I'm a web developer. <laughs> um, as far as web security, I mean, I, I feel like uh, you know, I, there's probably more that I could do, um, but yeah, I don't do anything other than just like install it and run it. As far as setting all that all that kind of stuff up, yeah, um, I do have kind of a weird config. Uh, I use Firefox on OpenBSD and Mac OS. I install a handful of add-ons like um, uBlock and HTTPS Everywhere stuff like that. Um, but the thing that I like the most is an add-on called Self-Destructing Cookies. <laughs> which is actually uh, an idea that I implemented in the web browser that I make for iOS, which is called Endless, if you want to check that out if you use iOS. Um, but the basic idea is that um, as you're browsing websites, these websites are all putting cookies on your computer and then reading them later. So the way to do it before, which is actually how I did it and it was so annoying, is to turn on um, prompts for cookies so every time you went to a site and it wanted to give you a cookie, Firefox would put up a prompt saying, do you want to accept this, accept it for a session, or deny it? And it was you know, such a pain to figure that out every time, and you had to figure it out before the website tried to do anything, because it was as soon as you went to the site. So you'd click like deny, and then it would be like, oh no, something's broken, and then you'd have to be like, oh, so it actually doesn't require cookies, so you'd have to go back and like allow it. So the idea behind self-destructing uh, cookies is that it just accepts all these cookies by default as you're browsing. And then as you navigate away from the website and you have no other tabs open that are accessing any of those cookies within a certain timeout, um, they just get deleted. So the next time you go to that site, it just doesn't have any cookies that it had there you know, a half hour ago. Nice. Um, and then there's just a simple whitelist. So you can say, like, the websites that you want to stay logged in as or on, um, you can do that. So my whitelist is only, like, I don't know, a dozen websites that I need to stay logged in at. But for every other website, they're not able to 
store cookies in the long term, which I think is like the best way to do it really, because yeah. uh, it doesn't break websites because they can still set temporary cookies. But realistically, um, once I navigate away from your website and I don't want to stay logged in, like there's no, absolutely no reason for you to need to store any long-term cookies on my computer. That's right. And, and the reason for that is, um, you know, people say cookies only get sent to the sites that they originate from. But if you have a, a program, like on your mobile phone or something, uh, this is what uh, those toolbars used to do mm -hmm. in browsers. They would read all those cookies and they would get that information and they would harvest it and they would send it back because um, another tool on your computer or another program on your computer can read that stuff and send it back. So that's that's generally what they're used for. Um, and it's and you're right. There's no reason to have that kind of stuff laying around and accessed by um, other applications or have it on there at all. I, I notice it all the time now. Like I'll search for something, and then all of a sudden I'm visiting some completely arbitrary site, and it's like, hey, you want to buy this thing from Amazon? And I'm like, man, I really hate that this is happening. You yeah. know, it's 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 crazy and creepy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So like I still use Google for my search engine, but I've never logged into it. And any cookies like that that Google would want to store get deleted as soon as I navigate away from Google. So none of that stuff can follow you around. Um, and this add-on also does the local storage databases, so it's not just cookies. Um, so it'll clear everything that uh, websites are trying to store on your machine. Um, and so I basically implemented the same idea in uh, my web browser on iOS. Um, as well as HTTPS everywhere. Nice. And I used to use the, uh, what was it, um, Disconnect, which blocks a bunch of, like, trackers and stuff like that. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't more like ads. It was just like the uh, tracking companies and stuff. Um, but now I use Privacy Badger, which is a similar thing by EFF. And the nice thing about Privacy Badger, Badger is it kind of figures the stuff out on its own. It doesn't need like a list that's constantly updated. Um, it kind of uh, analyzes like what uh, hosts a web page is trying to access stuff from, and it'll block it automatically. And obviously, you can like whitelist stuff, but I haven't really had to as long as I've been using it. Yeah, the the one that I, I mean, everybody says this, and I think it's a silly thing to say. You know, people say that I have nothing to hide, but one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is somebody links to a news site and it's like you get inundated with this crap mm -hmm. that just doesn't belong there. You want the content of that particular article and that's it. And there's all these things like tracking how long you stay on the page and uh, all this other information, this ancillary information. And those news articles are clickbaity for that very reason. I mean, they, they want you to get on their site and they want you to give them this information or they want to harvest this information and do stuff. So, um, yeah, I definitely need to get into that kind of thing. I need to start doing something like that because it's hard to navigate the web these days without feeling like you have 10 people standing over your shoulder right. when you're trying to read a news article. I have a cable internet connection and then I have an OpenBSD firewall mm -hmm. and I have that set up so that every week, I think it's every week, maybe every few days, um, it creates a random MAC address on the outbound Ethernet interface and then reboots the uh, cable modem so I get a new IP. 
So even these sites that are not able to track me with a cookie, but are able to buy my IP, um, it's good to not have a long-lasting IP that lasts for like years or whatever. Yeah. Um, obviously no, uh, no flash is installed. Do you run Java? Uh, I had to <laughs> have it enabled the other day when I had to access that KVM, uh, on one of my dedicated servers. Yeah. And it like, obviously everything's disabled by default. So I had to like go in and toggle all these things. And I got all these warnings from Java, like saying, are you sure you really want to do that? And I'm like, yes, Java, I want to do it this one time. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so no, uh, flash is installed and then I have Chrome installed on my Mac so that if I need to access something that requires flash, I just open it up in Chrome since it has its own sandboxed version of flash. Um, and then as far as like things that are not really privacy or security related, uh, I use the stylish, uh, add-on, which lets you, uh, define like custom CSS for websites. So if you want to like override some terrible design on a website. Every time you go to it, you can do that. Um, and then I use the Vim FX plugin, which gives you some Vim keyboard shortcuts for Firefox. Um, nice. Just makes it easier to uh, navigate around without having to use a mouse. And uh, the thing that I like the most is when you hit the, uh, well, I have it bound to F. I don't know if that's the default, but you get the hit a hint thing. So it, if you hit F, it puts up a little letter next to every link on the page mm -hmm. and then you just type like whatever the two characters are next to that link and it'll click on it for you nice so it's just like it's really fast to navigate uh websites by keyboard that way yeah i like doing stuff like that and then on uh openbsd i'm waiting for the uh the pledge file argument to be enabled in the kernel so firefox can be told you can only read from the Firefox directory and the downloads directory yeah, so that like even that. if uh, something bad happens, it's not able to pull my SSH keys or something like something stupid like that. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that too. I think um, browsers being able to upload pictures is a great thing uh, if you need to upload pictures, but you know, the disc access that they have right now is just way too much. Yeah. I, I did kind of want to throw in one extra bonus thing. In talking about the browsers, um, I've noticed that uh, two of the more popular like websites that I use, um, I'm, I'm really finding that they don't work well, uh, they don't interface well, and I don't enjoy interfacing with them in the browser. And um, so, like Inbox is one of those. I was okay with the Gmail interface. This Inbox thing is like completely out of hand. And um, at first I thought I kind of liked the features that they incorporated, but now I find that um, just going back to Mutt is so much better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, web interfaces for email are, you know, kind of a trendy thing, and a lot of people use them, and I've used them a lot. But honestly, um, it's it's really, really bad right now. So I'm going back to Mutt most of the time for looking at my email. And the other thing that I found that's kind of interesting, I think there was a new port imported for um, talking to Twitter, um, you know, looking at tweets, and it's a standalone program for doing that. Hmm. And and I was like, huh, I don't know why, you know, but then it kind of occurred to me as I was sitting here looking at Twitter, I was trying to do something very simple today, 
and it was just a bunch of web requests going all over the place and tracking this and slow that yeah. and you know if even if you just ignore all the the information that they're selling to people and all that kind of stuff it just doesn't work well in the browser <laughs> yeah and so when you have a web interface that is uh harvesting data to the point where it's not usable or the interface has just been i don't know too overdone i suppose that people are writing standalone applications it should be a clue that you know we're going the wrong direction with this stuff yeah so i browse twitter through a web app that i made called denim it's at the, mm -hmm. the domain den.im um, and it is basically my RSS reader that I have been using since the old blog lines site uh, went under, which is a long time ago now. Um, and so I've been using it as my RSS reader forever. And then when I started using Twitter, I hated using the website, um, Twitter's web interface, because I kept changing it and like adding all this stupid stuff to it. Yep. So I added uh, Twitter support to Denim. So I basically browse, or I read Twitter like an RSS feed. So every new tweet that comes in shows up like as a new item. So I, like, was when you go to the normal Twitter website, it's kind of only showing you like what's recent, unless you keep scrolling all the you. way back and then they changed it recently. So now they don't even show you that. They're like, here's what we think you should read. Yeah. So I actually read every tweet that um, is in my timeline, which I understand a lot of people don't do that. Um, but maybe that's why I don't follow that many people, because I only like want to follow people that have something to say, and they're not just like retweeting everything that comes through. Right. Um, and so, like the rare times when I actually need to log into the Twitter website to do something that my client doesn't support, um, I'm always baffled about how much crap they keep adding to it and how right. many things they keep changing. Like, how can you keep changing things for your users? Like, that's got to piss off so many people. It does. And, and I hear it all the time. People complain about that all the time. Twitter, just show me what my, my, the people who I'm following, just show me what they're posting, show it in the time that it came in, the order that it came in, and just let me read it. Right. And it's a, just makes people so pissed off when this happened. And it's like, I don't want to see this ad. I don't want to see this animated GIF for this stupid thing that you're mm -hmm. trying to sell. I just want to see the tweets. Like, that's why I came here. Right. Um, and so, like, I also added, uh, so each uh, Twitter account that I have shows up as a separate feed, basically, in Denim, um, which was the other reason I wanted to do it, because I have, like, my JCS account, my Superblock account, and the Garbage FM account. So mm -hmm. I can quickly read each one separately and then, like, send out a tweet as that account, which uh, I think you still can't do under the normal Twitter client. You have to use, like, some some, like, commercial... Twitter client, if you want to manage multiple accounts at once. Yeah. So yeah, I just really prefer this this way of doing things like RSS feeds. So you get, like you were saying, the plain text of an article. You can read it in your own interface. You can read it right. when you want. Like all these, you know, you can do whatever you want with it, just like I can with all my tweets. Like if I go away for a week, I'll come back and I can read every single tweet that had come in that week in the order that they were sent out as. Um, and it seems like websites are trying to take all that control away from you and get you to use their website that they keep adding all this, this, uh, heavy JavaScript and tracking and all that other kind of stuff too. 
if if this is like the artificial intelligence, like, hey, we've studied your behaviors and we know what you want now. You mm-hmm. guys got it wrong. Your algorithms suck. Yeah. <laughs> is that harsh to say? No, because, you know, I think that they know that they suck, but they're not trying to make it like the best that they can. They're trying to make it so that they have a way to inject stuff that makes them money. Yeah. Because like that's Twitter's business plan, right? That was the only yeah. way that they, they can, they had all these users and they're like, well, we can't charge them for it. What can we do? I don't know. Show them ads. Yeah. And I, and I guess people with this, uh, learning patterns, like, oh, we know that if he sees this type of thing, he clicks on it 65% of the time. So we're going to whatever, mm-hmm. like it's not close though. Like I think they measure it as being pretty accurate, but it, in my mind, like this is like frustrating and way off and you know, it gets in the way 10 times out of 10 and helps absolutely none of the time. So, <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of like self-fulfilling. You see it once, so you click on it and then it's like, oh, he likes it. He clicked on it. Let's show it to him again. And right. then like you see it again and then you click on it and they keep showing you what you keep clicking on, but you're clicking on it because that's all they're, they're showing you. So it's like, right. it's just like, um, who is it? DuckDuckGo, I think they had that like bubble, uh, campaign that they don't bubble I have to look it up now. Well, while you're looking that up, it's like, heaven forbid you accidentally click on something. Yeah. You know, like you're trying to scroll on your phone and you accidentally click on something or you're trying to pinch something and you wind up clicking it. And then you're like, why do I see football ads all the time now? I hate this. Right. So that's what it was. It's uh, if you go to don'tbubble.us, don't bubble us, I guess, DuckDuckGo had this like advertising campaign that they do not, that they want you to escape your search engines filter bubble. And hmm. so the idea is that if you search Google while you're logged in, or maybe even not logged in, they just keep this long-lasting cookie on your account, unless or on your computer, unless you use my web browser or this add-on that I use. Um, as you search for things, it remembers all that, and so it starts tailoring your search results based on what you've searched for before. So, hmm. like I was saying, like it keeps it's like a self-fulfilling thing. It's showing you stuff that you've looked at before even if you didn't want to look at it before. And if yeah. that's all you start seeing, like it starts tailoring the news for you. And so you start not learning about other new things. Yep. You start getting all of your, like it shows you news from uh, like an example on this page. It's if you search for Barack Obama and you're logged in as one account, you get news from MSNBC as the top result. And uh, another user does the same search and they get all their top results from Fox news. And it's like, yep. that's, because those are the websites that you have gone to and clicked on before. Yep. And I and I hate that. And um, it's not the right thing. I mean, it's really not the right thing. And in fact, um, you know, you're talking about apps that you've built. I have this app that I'm working on right now that is basically um, keeps track of information for me because I get so tired of searching for it because. Even things that I've searched for in the past, when I go to find them again, my search results are skewed um, between... So, for instance, I looked for something uh, 18 months ago, and uh, I know because I made little notes on a, on a notepad, um, and so I wrote down where it was and what, to, what I searched for, and, I've been, and I went there not too long ago because I needed to order those parts again, and when I went to go look for that thing again... It, it like wasn't even visible. Like I was like, wait a second, how is this not here? Like this doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And eventually I was able to coerce Google into showing me what I needed to see rather than what they thought I needed to see. And I got the parts that I was looking for and got them ordered again. But 
I mean, in my mind, if you can't even be, I guess, consistent within a, a single user's experience during a single time, then you're not going it, to... It's just dumb. Stop doing it, guys. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure the people who do this don't listen to our podcast, but it's ridiculous. Um, more people should speak up about it. It's horrible. And more people should listen to our podcast. Yeah. Yeah, they should. I, I'm actually... Uh, it's really great, the, the people who do listen, because you guys uh, always send emails and tweets and tell us you appreciate it and um and i think that that's great i'm glad to feel because sometimes you know you go into work every day and you're like fighting this battle with people and you're like this is the way it should be and it's nice to hear that people echo our sentiments Mm -hmm. (laughs) we've been there and uh it's nice to hear that echoed back so anyway sidebar thanking the listeners for being awesome people i think you're great and if um if we ever need to form like this company that doesn't suck, I know who to call. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of like when you were talking about using Mutt before. Um, yeah. I've been using Mutt for like decades, I guess. Um, and I've always, I always reply like you're supposed to reply to emails where you mm-hmm. quote things and then you go in line and then you reply to that point and whatever. Yeah. And I've had people tell me that like that's rude. Like that's a rude way to reply to emails and you're supposed yeah. to like top reply. Cause that's how they do it in Gmail and Outlook and all that stuff. Um, and I've realized that, uh, in my duties as being the primary customer support for pushover, where I have to email back and forth to random strangers every day, um, they have turned me into a top poster <laughs> because they don't reply the way that I do. So if I, reply in line and then cut out like all the crap that doesn't need to be in there. Then they reply and they just do a top reply. So their replies the cross, right? So then when I go to reply to that email, if I just quote that one line that they, that they typed back now, they don't have any context because they weren't right. replying the right way. So now I have, I actually made a new mutt macro so that in, I have an R, uh, like the R command just does a normal reply. And then when I do shift R, it does a reply with a top reply for that one email only. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, when I get these emails from people, I figure, okay, you're a top poster. So I'm going to reply to you the same way. And yeah. I've realized that like so many people now, uh, they do that. And so they have changed me into becoming this person that I hate. Well, since I've been setting the internet ablaze today, um, I'm going to do it again. The same people, so I work in a corporate environment. You guys probably know that by now. And, uh, the same people who complain to me about, uh, not top posting, they're like, Brandon, why are you re- replying to emails like this? I have been copied in on email chains that are 30 messages long. And, uh, you know, and so like I'll reply to it and I, I'll read through like the backwards top posting. Mm-hmm. But if I do that to someone else, they're like, I can't understand this email thread. And I'm like, you know why you can't understand the email thread? Because it's all top posted. Yeah. And, and, you know, so people don't know what they want. Uh, and, and, and really that's why we do this, you know, and regardless of what the industry trend says, the industry trend is wrong. It's, you know, some arbitrary decision was made by a developer to, to format the email this way. Um, and they got it wrong. And so, you know, it, it, it's just one of those things that 
it pains me every single time it happens. You know, I copy yeah. somebody in on an email thread and they're like, oh, Brandon, I can't understand this. And I'm like, I know it's because you idiots use Outlook and Outlook makes you makes all the information more difficult to understand and all that kind of stuff. So it's just like yeah. Twitter. Have you ever seen a screenshot somebody made of a Twitter conversation or like someone's oh, yeah. timeline where they're like tweeting multiple times? It's backwards. Yep. You have to start from the bottom and read up. Whereas like in denim, I read everything from the, from the top down, like you normally do. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I had this other thing I wanted to talk about that I was thinking of today because somebody asked me, somebody emailed me and said that they use pushover and they, they found out that I was the person that made it and that made them happy. And so they were asking me how I use pushover. Mm -hmm. So I was telling them like, you know, I use it for this and whatever, um, but it made me think of how many things uh, I have made for myself to make things better for me. But then once I make them public and other people start using them, that I can't really use them anymore. <laughs> and so it's multiple things. Like, so I made pushover because I used to use this uh, service called Notifo, which did the same thing, but I needed a way to hook it up to my network monitor. So anytime something would, one of my servers would go down, I could get notified on my phone. Well, obviously if, I am now running the service that does that. I can't use that for my network monitor that is monitoring the servers for pushover. <laughs> so for all of my other servers, it uses pushover, but for all of my pushover servers, I have to fall back to using uh, Twilio to send me SMS messages when something goes down. And so obviously like I can't benefit from all the stuff that I've built into pushover, like the emergency priority stuff where it repeats a notification every like 30 seconds until you acknowledge it. So if you're mm -hmm. sleeping and it sends you a message at three in the morning, it'll keep repeating it until you wake up and click on it. Yeah. And then like uh, lobsters. So I built in the tag filters so that if you don't want to see stories about Python or something, you can just go in your settings and say, I don't want to see stories about Python. And that's it. Well, I'm the moderator of the site, so I have to see everything that gets posted <laughs> so I can read it all and like make sure no one's having a weird flame war in the Python stories. So I can't use tag filters at all. And it's like, that's the one thing that I wanted in Hacker News and that I finally built in my own website. And now I can't even use it because I'm like, there's only like two moderators. Yeah. And then uh, another thing is that since we were talking about web browsers and add-ons and stuff, like I want to be able to, with the stylish plugin, I want to be able to like fix a bunch of things on websites um, and like make them better for me and use plugins like, uh, that change my view and like, you know, make it all customizable and comfortable for me, but I can't change any of those website or any of those settings in my browser because occasionally I have to do web design and I can't be <laughs> using a web browser that's different than the way everybody else is going to see it. Right. Yeah. So I have to make sure that my fonts sizes are all, you know, the same as, you know, what most people see. I have to have all the standard um, fonts from like Windows and Mac OS installed so that they get, you know, um, they show properly on pages and all that. Yeah. So I don't know. It was just this weird uh, thing I was thinking about today. And it's like um, I keep having to do things subpar because everyone else has to because I have to like, you know, do things the way that everyone else does. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I guess some days I wish I could go back to being able to just do things however I wanted and not have to provide these services to anybody else. Yeah, I will say I find myself in a completely different mindset or 
I, I want different tools when I'm a consumer of things than mm -hmm. I do when I'm building stuff. For sure. And, uh, and that's really hard for me, you know, and, and it always happens. Like I'll build something at work and people will be like, why did you do this? And I'll be like, Hmm, you know, like, yeah, I guess that doesn't really make sense. And so the, the, um, when you use these tools to do certain things, I guess they get used a certain way. And, uh, you know, people don't really pick up on that subtlety, you know, like, well, what's the difference if, you know, if uh, an IT person uses this versus a developer versus an end user? And you're like, well, there's a there's a considerable amount of difference in, in all these kinds of things. So, yeah, it's interesting. I like that thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been features that I've wanted to add to Pushover because I want to use them myself. But then I'm like, well, no one else is going to use this. Um, and I can't really add this as a full-fledged feature. So I've actually put stuff in there that is only enabled through a like hidden setting that I turn on. Yeah. You have Easter eggs in there. Yeah. And I mean, it goes the other way too. Like people, I get a lot of requests for a feature and I'm like, that's stupid. I'm not going to implement that. I'm, I would never <laughs> use that. But then it's like, you know, these people are paying my mortgage and all that stuff. Like I should probably put this feature in because they want it and they're paying me for it. Yeah, it's it's hard to build software that way. I think we have, you know, one of those things. Well, when you start to do that kind of stuff, though, um, I witnessed something this week where it's like, I watched this product and everyone was like, man, this product is so awesome. We love this product. This is revolutionary. All my friends, you have to get this product. This is awesome. And they're right. Like, Was it pushover? Great... No, no, no. It wasn't pushover. <laughs> um, and then the manufacturer... Uh, they're like, you know what, if the manufacturer did this one subtle change to the design, it would be so great. And, um, you know, like it would just take this really, really awesome revolutionary product and it would just make it perfect. It would be so perfect. And um, what wound up happening was the manufacturer was caught up on all these businesses who were like, hey, you know what, everybody else has this thing. You need to get this thing. And so all these different distribution channels were saying, oh, you know what, you're your product is pretty good, but look at what you're competing with. Start incorporating these features. So then uh, the manufacturer starts incorporating all these other features. And then eventually what happens is the um, the main reason that this one product was so much better than all the others uh, was lost because um, one of the goofy changes that was made to be more like the other products that he was competing with crippled his um, like the thing that made his design so much better. And if he would have just changed the one little thing, you know, and ignored all the noise, it would have been fantastic. And I think that happens in technology, too, where, you know, it's like everybody's talking about, hey, this, hey, this, hey, this, and the core functionality is compromised. And if you just um, didn't do anything and made one subtle change, it would be good enough and let people adapt to the other things around it or make another tool that does the other little things around it. Remember, Unix used to do that, like... <laughs> One tool that does one job, awesome, and now we have like mash, like these huge conglomerations of things smashed together, and it doesn't do any one of them well or accurately. So. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, being a software developer in charge of a product, you certainly have to um, be able to say no. Uh, and even like when I get feedback from my users, I might get an email once a day for a week from people asking for the same feature. And I think like, wow, that's, that's a lot of people writing in for this one feature. And then it's like, wait, that was seven requests out of 
200,000 users. Like right. maybe yep. it's just these vocal few that want this feature, but it's not really a good idea to add it or to change it because they want it that way. Yeah. So, yep. And I think, you know, certainly in OpenBSD, we're pretty good at saying no to uh, crap that is a bad idea. Yeah. I think, too, a lot of times people are lazy. Um, one of the things I was reading in the Gen 2 thread today, um, you know, SSL V2 has been, like, disabled, broken, stopped using it for a number of years now. And, um, you know, these package builders were like, oh, my gosh, I have all this stuff to fix. And what really should have happened is the community should have said, oh, here's my piece of software. I need to disable SSL V2. We know that doesn't work anymore. You know, fix my package. But, you know, here we are eight, seven, eight years later, and, and now they have to do it. And they're like, oh, boo-hoo. Again, I'm contrasting the proactive approach of, you know, let's start ripping this junk out that doesn't belong here versus the people who just want to be lazy and let their stuff atrophy in a source tree somewhere. Yeah, um, that's something we forgot to mention in the OpenBSD news is that the Linux compatibility code was ripped out of the kernel yeah. and the uh, ports tree and stuff. And I was thinking about this, like, um, I don't think a lot of other projects remove code as much as OpenBSD does. And I was trying to think of why that is. Um, and I know, like, somebody will propose, like, they'll post on the developers list, like, I want to remove this feature. It's, uh, you know, standing in the way of something new that's better. Um, and I don't think a lot of people use this. Can I rip it out? And you'll get, like, one or two developers that will reply and say, I use that feature but it's not really that important to me and I don't want it mm -hmm. to like stand in the way of, you know, progress. So yeah, I'll have to go like update my config or something to work around it, but you know, rip it out. Whereas I think maybe in other projects, um, somebody will step up and say, no, I'm still using that, uh, weird outdated function from two decades ago. Don't rip it out. And that'll be enough for them to be like, oh, okay, someone's using this. I can't remove it. Yeah. And even some projects have a stance of, no, you can never make changes that break backwards compatibility. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah. Um, and to that point, the Linux um, stuff was old and out of date, and that was kind of one of the reasons they said, like, we don't even know, you know, what the upgrade path would be if we wanted to upgrade this to, to a newer version of whatever Linux that we were on or all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, they said, let's get it out. Uh, there's VMs for that kind of thing now, and uh, it's time to move forward. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that's all we have for this episode. So if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode. Um, also, if you have uh, short questions, I guess uh, it doesn't have to be like a full topic that we you want us to talk about. But even if you have uh, short questions, I noticed on some other podcasts, a lot of people write in with just questions that are easily answered. So if you have those two, you can uh, reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM, subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at Garbage.fm, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Brandon, where can people find you? Yep, you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W, and I'm also on Google Plus if you want to venture through those waters. <laughs> I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs 
and I read Twitter oldest to newest.